August 2014 marks the 100th anniversary of the start of the First World War. To commemorate this event, the school has put together an exhibition to show how health professionals have worked to improve health in areas of conflict over the past century. Although the exhibition focuses on historic healthcare professionals and practice in war, the school is still very much at the forefront of contemporary research in conflict zones around the world today. Dr Bayard Roberts is the director of the European Centre on Health of Societies in Transition at the school. His research includes health policies of countries in transition, such as conflict-affected states. He told us more about his work, which focuses on mental health and other non-communicable diseases. Well, I think overall the, the issue of, of conflict and post-conflict is still marginalised and neglected. So there's still ignorance globally around the importance of addressing public health aspects for conflict-affected civilian populations. That's people like refugees, internally displaced persons, and also those living in, in the middle of conflict, such as we're seeing today with Syria, Central Africa Republic, or indeed Iraq, Palestinian territories, um, but also those in post-conflict settings and how we, we can rebuild their health systems to make them better than they were before. So the whole issue still needs a lot more attention. I spent three months in Sarajevo post-conflict, and... It was a very, very frightening place to be. I'm just thinking of that in connection with mental health issues um, because the complete civil infrastructure had broken down. So you had the architecture of the city, which was ruined, but there was just nothing there. There was no police force. There was nobody in charge. There was no sense of a civil society as we know it. Could you just make a comment on how that impacts people in post-conflict? Well, I think it has enormous impacts. Clearly, the collapse of a, of a health system and the dismantling of a health system impacts upon all aspects of health, including communicable disease, delivery of health services, vaccination services, key public health functions, but also in terms of sexual and reproductive health and, and particularly gender-based violence, where we see a real collapse of, of enforcement mechanisms to prevent gender-based violence and deal with the perpetrators of gender-based violence, including, importantly, intimate partner violence, but also the collapse of social norms in terms of preventing and, and dealing with gender-based violence. So that's a major issue globally. As you say, it's a huge issue in, in the conflicts of the Balkans and it's been highlighted in many other conflicts. But also we see major impacts on, on mental health as well. So there's a sort of normalisation of violence that takes place within a theatre of war which then somehow sort of spreads into a post-conflict zone. Yeah, and I think Democratic Republic of Congo is a sort of really sad example of that where what's being witnessed there is really a, a sort of normalisation of violence, a huge increase in intimate partner violence. Rather than it being violence perpetrated by combatants, we're seeing dramatic rises in intimate partner violence there. I noticed from one of your papers that you have done some work around things that we might just call lifestyle factors in um, a peaceful society but take on a, a different resonance in conflict and post-conflict around heavy drinking and heavy smoking and it seems to be implying that these are sort of become embedded as dangerous habits during a time when people are maybe just focusing on day-to-day -day survival but then they don't stop them when the threat stops. Yes, so there certainly is a, is a risk of this. However, we, we just don't know, actually, because there's very little research that's been done on it. So there's lots of reasons why we should be worried about, for example, har harmful health behaviours, such as harmful alcohol use, amongst conflict-affected populations, because there's key risk factors present. For example, comorbidity, 
with mental disorders such as depression, which are often elevated during, uh, amongst people affected by armed conflict. The exposure to high levels of poverty, unemployment and so on, which are another, other unknown risk factors for harmful alcohol use. The challenge is that people haven't really measured it very much in order to have a, an informed opinion as to whether it's a risk factor or not amongst these populations. Can I just ask, how do you do research under such extreme conditions? And can you generalise from one conflict to another, or is every conflict so particular in itself that that data is only applicable to that one set of conditions? It's a very good question. I think we, we cannot really generalise from one conflict to another because they're they are so varied in terms of the severity of violence, the epidemiological profiles of the conflict-affected populations and the demographic socio-economic circumstances in which they take place. So we cannot generalise. However, there may be lessons that could be useful for other settings. In the absence of sufficient evidence in each context, we have to make some kind of um, inference to help understand how they may be useful in other contexts. And in terms of, of conducting research in these settings, clearly there's a, there's a hierarchy and the first and foremost need is saving lives. And once the setting has stabilised to some extent where research is possible, uh, really it should be done as soon as possible. And that could be using ongoing information collection systems such as routine surveillance systems that should be set up. It can also be done using cross-sectional household surveys. And there's been very high-profile examples of research done in extremely difficult circumstances such as in Iraq and in Democratic Republic of Congo, even some coming out of Syria. So we can see the research is done. I think clearly there's logistical challenges as, as there are for doing any kind of operational activities in these settings. But I think a broader challenge is a lack of commitment and investment for public health research in these settings. When a conflict actually stops and you move into the post-conflict era, what period of time in general after the cessation of hostilities would you start to see this shift in patterns of communicable and non-communicable diseases? Yeah, I think the shift in the pattern from communicable to non-communicable disease is not really related to conflict itself and the post-conflict period, but it, what the post-conflict period does potentially represent is a rapid in, uh, escalation in investment from bilateral and multilateral donors, but also as the economy stabilises and potentially improves, it represents an opening up of new markets, which could also lead to the entrance of multinational transnational companies. And clearly that may be very good and important for the economy. But some of these companies may not be good for the health of the population. They may be bringing in products which could be very popular and they're a sign of... Western civilization, but actually in health terms, these may not be beneficial. Exactly. So we've seen examples of, for example, British American tobacco now going into Burma and, and extolling the virtues of Burma and seeing it as a really important new market. Clearly, that's, this has enormous risk for the health of the population in Burma. We've also seen other examples of, for example, the food industry sector growing in enormously in, in post-conflict Sri Lanka. So this has major implications for obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease and so on. What, what could be done about this? Is this purely a political problem? In the post-conflict environment, I think in many ways it is. It's about getting national government commitment towards addressing, meaningfully addressing NCDs, but crucially it's also about getting international commitment 
from the key agencies, so that's the WHO, the multilateral agencies, the bilateral donor agencies, to really engage in, in the issue of NCDs and, and risk factors around that, because they're such crucial actors in this post-conflict period. We also did a, a large-scale systematic review, which was funded by DFID, the Wellcome Trust, and ELRA, to explore the, the evidence base behind public health interventions in humanitarian crises. So we did this over the last uh, 35 years almost. And what we found is really there's a very scarce evidence base behind health interventions in humanitarian crises. Clearly there's a lot that we could learn from stable settings. But in terms of evidence specifically from humanitarian crises, there's an absolute dearth of evidence on what's really effective. And what that really highlights, I think, is, is the neglect of research and public health research in these settings. If we have a commitment to trying to do the best possible job in these settings, we really need to have an evidence base behind that and learn uh, lessons from previous interventions and previous activities. And I think what this systematic review and this broader initiative by DFID, Wellcome Trust and ELRA highlights is that there's still enormous gaps in knowledge around what's most effective and crucially what's most feasible in these settings and I think we're almost at the beginning of this this process of, of really trying to develop a strong evidence base behind what works in humanitarian settings and I, I think that this is a, sort of we have a long road to go in terms of showing what's most effective and what's most feasible and if we don't do that, there's almost an issue of, of sort of public health neglect because we're simply not doing the best possible job that we can in very, very difficult circumstances. But we have a duty to try and do better constantly. Even though the, the circumstances are very difficult um, and that must cause enormous problems on research in the field, but are there technological solutions to data collection which are going to help as we go forward, which is going to make obtaining the kind of evidence easier? Yes, absolutely. I think there's enormous potential for technology in these settings. So we're seeing the increasing use of, for example, satellite imagery to understand the, the size and nature of, of settlements, for example, refugee or internally displaced person settlements. We're also seeing the use of crowdsourcing to really try and use um, social media to highlight where the most acute needs are, for example, where the greatest impact of an earthquake has taken place or another natural other types of natural disaster so there's enormous potential there and in terms of researchers as well use of of computerized technology for collecting data for monitoring mobile data mobile phones for uh, surveillance and surveying work so there's a lot of potential there i think the major the major gap remains really a commitment amongst academia humanitarian agencies and particularly funding agencies, to support research in these settings. So we all have a duty, I believe, to be trying to collect as much information as possible in order to show that the best possible job is being done uh, in effective and feasible ways in these settings. I don't know if it's accurate to say that Florence Nightingale would be an early example of a public health official, that indeed she was out in the field collecting information and treating people at the same time. Um, how far have we come since the days of Florence Nightingale? Well, I think definitely it's uh, an apt example of, of uh, public health research in uh, conflict zones. She was you know, one of the great public health 
researchers in these zones. How far have we come? Well, in many ways we've come an awful long way, but it's still a relatively young field and it's evolving and developing all the time. But it's And there's some wonderful work that's taken place and really crucial work and amazing work by humanitarian agencies. But there's plenty more that we could do. And I think there's a great appetite for that at the moment. Do you find a receptive audience when you discuss the research that you've pioneered? Absolutely. I I think within the health community, there's enormous interest in this subject. We've had here at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, we've had a programme on conflict and health for over... 20 25 years and the the numbers of students taking it increases every year so there's appetite within most of the humanitarian community and ngos there's appetite within academia i think we really need support of the major uh, un agencies and particularly multilateral and bilateral donors to mainstream research into into public health practice in these settings